Good day. You're listening to Free City Radio. I'm Stefan Christoph in Montreal. Thanks for joining us. This is the 171st edition of the show. On the program today, I will be featuring a conversation I had with Philippe Blouin, who is one of the co-editors of a really important book on the history of uh, Mohawk indigenous resistance movements in Turtle Island. Philip co-edited the book, and it's called The Mohawk Warrior Society, a handbook on sovereignty and survival. This book is focused on the art of the Mohawk Warriors Society, um, particularly the work of Lewis Hall, and that is the person who designed the Mohawk Warrior flag. It goes into depth also about the intersections of art and activism within the Gayangahaga people, the Mohawk people, and their process of depicting and developing imagery in the decades before what's called the Oka Crisis, the standoff um, in the Pines just south of Montreal um, that really brought uh, the Mohawk warriors flag to international prominence. This was, of course, in the summer of 1990. Philip spent a long time working with Indigenous um, activists and researchers in Ganesatagi, Ganawagi, other places, and it's an excellent project. So here's my conversation with Philip Blouin on the Mohawk Warrior Society. So to understand the origins of the Mohawk warrior flag is really important. Um, it's such a major symbol of indigenous resistance movements throughout Turtle Island. And you worked on this book to look at Lewis Hall's um, history, his involvement in um, indigenous activism for the land but also his artwork so maybe you could just introduce yourself and just introduce also your book project yeah th thanks uh, for having me i'm uh, philippe bluin and uh, i'm an anthropologist um well i'm a phd candidate in anthropology at mcgill at, at the moment uh but this book project i started working on it before i started that phd um perhaps around 2015 when I met those Galangiaga uh, um, Mohawk uh, traditionals, longhouse people um, in Aguasasne at first and then Ganawake. And I was just, you know, amazed uh, how the just the amazing life experience and, and profound knowledge and philosophy that these people had. And, you know, being, um, you know, in... Uh, uh, inhabited with all these this imagery and this fascination about the the warrior society especially in french canadian uh quebecer society and you know media outlets during the oka crisis in 1990 that showed them as you know thugs and 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 criminals and um and just this fear that's been instilled since early childhood really in in quebecer children uh at school learning that the Iroquois were, you know, burning our ancestors alive and always attacking those French-Canadian settlers. Um, it, yeah, I just, upon meeting them, I, I understood how this was a much bigger story than only a, uh, a story of resistance. This is 
uh, a, a story of the resistance of a whole culture that has a direct continuum with pre-colonial times and it's the resistance of a, a culture based on a language especially and on a whole way of seeing the world uh, that that comes with that language uh, language uh, Geha. Um, so the idea of the book was because well my friends um, uh, Mohawk friends showed me these uh, writings from uh, um, a figure that had been a mentor for many of them uh, in the 60s, Louis Hall, Garu Nakdaje. And uh, we all know the, the, the warrior flag, which is actually called a unity flag, but uh, no one knows its origins, how it came to be, uh, and how this idea of a, of a Mohawk warrior society came to be. And um, can you just describe the flag visually for people listening who might not be familiar with it and maybe have seen it but aren't familiar with what you're talking about? Yes, actually it's this flag with a red background and then uh, there's a sun and uh, the head of an indigenous person uh, with a, a feather on top and it's uh, one feather to, to symbolize uh, all indigenous people. So that's why it's a, a flag of unity of resistance. And the sun in there is really important. I think that might be the core of the work we did for the book. Uh, uh, you know, a, a gathering oral history about the cultural roots of this resistance. Because the, actually, um, the term Mohawk Warrior Society was put up, uh, was a suggestion by Louis Holgan, um, as some kind of a, well, a, as a tool uh, in, uh, as part of what he called psychological warfare. And that was really, uh, you know, uh, at the core of his uh, revolutionary thinking was how uh, colonial society, um, you know, <laughs> enforces uh, its, its extinction policies, uh, first and foremost by attacking uh, the sense of self-pride and identity of indigenous people. So this is the psychological warfare that uh, Louis Hall worked against by uh, through his artwork as much as in his writings that are really, you know, made as a, a call, uh, uh, a spiritual call to arms, we call it, um, uh, uh, designed to revive the, uh, the the pride and spirit of resistance of uh, indigenous people uh, against this, you know, spirit of being meek and and humble and just uh, accepting uh, what's being imposed by colonial society. It's uh, saying, on the contrary, that uh, there is no concession to be made. All the land is unceded, and uh, indigenous ways and uh, indigenous traditions are, must rule the land uh, once more. And so this is really visible in his artwork, especially, that we're really happy uh, to have uh, in the book. And it's the first time these paintings are, are released. And uh, it's such a <clears throat> tremendous style that's, in a way, uh, inspired or rather, you know, it, it's directed at uh, means of propaganda, of, you know, advertising in this modern society. Um, it's inspired by it you know in a way where all these indigenous people and warriors are portrayed as very powerful uh, healthy people that are you know getting things done and all that and with very bright colors uh, so that's also part of the psychological warfare 
But so this idea of the Mohawk Warrior Society, uh, it was a, a term that was suggested by, by Louis Hall to basically scare the, the white man uh, and get more uh, bargaining power and leverage from the state. And so the way it happened is that there was this small uh, group of people, there were seven at first, and uh, basically uh, teenagers uh, in Ganawake that had started a singing society and they were traveling all around to like recover some of the songs that had been lost in the community and, and start this uh, 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 gathering back those traditions. And then they, uh, they decided uh, that they wanted to form um, what finally uh, can be understood as the men's fire. So the, 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 the fire, the assembly of the men, which is uh, traditionally supposed to support uh, the women who are the, the true caretakers and the decision makers on the land is the women, the Ganistansra. Whereas the men, that's where the uh, sun uh, 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 comes in. Um, the, the, the women are one with the earth. The earth belongs to them. It's the, you know, the, the, the mother earth and all the plants are called sisters because they're also, um, you know, they come from the earth. Like the wild plants like raspberries are called uh, bigger sisters because they can take care of themselves. While uh, plants that are tendered are, are uh, you know, little sisters that you have to, to care for. Um, and then, the, uh, so the, the, the earth is inherently, you know, womanly. <laughs> and uh, whereas the men are modeled after the sun um, to provide warmth and uh, comfort and light uh, to, to the earth, but from, you know, an, uh, uh, also, traditionally, the men would, would go out for hunting and would take care of diplomacy, and, but the village would belong to the women. So uh, they would determine like the, the basis of social life. So it's this relationship where finally the, the Mohawk term for the, the warrior society is rotiskan uh, ragete, and it means the carriers of the soil. Uh, they have a little pouch that they get, uh, they get uh, the men uh, 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 in their coming-of-age ritual yeah. uh, with their natal soil uh, inside it. But their model is the, uh, the, the sun that's on the, uh, on the unity flag. Uh, but it's really, so it's a gendered division or gendered responsibilities, but that in the end, uh, you know, uh, mean that the men are there to help the women. Uh, to support them in their, you know, decision making and the true uh, owners, we could say, of this world, uh, of the earth, are the women, um, but only in the sense that they caretake the land for the future generations. In fact, uh, um, the term dahakunzunduje means the, the, the faces, the coming faces that are still within the earth, mm. and they are the true owners of the land and the women uh, caretake the land for those future generations coming and the men support them from uh, as the sun supports, providing warmth and, uh, and light. So a lot of these terms that you've mentioned are present in your book and you talked about the importance of language. Also, um, a lot of the ideas about um, equilibrium and um, an enlightenment of a relationship with Earth. You talk about the importance of thinking about how indigenous thought 
uh, is impacting us today, but also really impact what a lot of people have termed the Enlightenment in uh, Western Europe context. Um, you know, a lot of people have done work to look at how the reports written in the Jesuit relations journals really had a huge impact um, in terms of ideas. Um, so you sort of like intro your book that way to think about like how these indigenous ideas actually are very central to a lot of quote unquote progressive concepts that um, are really credited to Western European imperial powers. Um, and then sort of bring that into a future lens or present lens also where you show the sustaining conflict um, between these societies that reach back to that time but are still in conflict today. So your book does a lot to dehistoricize these frameworks and to put them in the present, which is so important. So maybe just looking at like why that link between the past and the present in a non historicized sense like in the sense that it's a living history um, why that was important part of what you were doing in terms of exploring the artwork of Lewis Hall but also languages language yeah. excuse me yeah well what's interesting uh, for that matter is how it's always ongoing uh, mm -hmm. we could say that more the time goes into the future more it's able also to you know, probe into uh, the past, an immemorial past, and refine uh, the ways of being consistent with the original instructions, as they often call them, which are in the language, in the language as an instruction, really, when you understand properly what it means. And, well, in the book, you know, because the book, yes, it has this uh, whole editorial apparatus that's there to help understand what's being said in the... Uh, in the oral history and the archives that are there. Uh, so there's a, a glossary of, of Mohawk concepts and uh, that was the hardest piece to put together and it's because you're really pinning down, you know, an understanding and a translation uh, uh, of a term that's very tricky because the language functions completely differently. So uh, you, you need at least a, a pretty big paragraph just to explain exactly what images come to mind with uh, uh, with a Mohawk word, you know, in a totally different language. Uh, but there's also these oral histories uh, from uh, some of the people who established that warrior society, that revival in the, uh, at the end of the 60s. Mm -hmm. And you have Louis Hall's uh, materials yeah. that are more archival piece. And what you see is that, like in the um, contemporary uh, 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 testimonies from people who took part in those struggles, the like the language they use to translate their thoughts that come from the Mohawk language, uh, you know, s seems more consistent with, uh, by, by contrast with Louis Hall, who was, you know, in the context of the Red Power Movement and a bit like the Black Panthers could also uh, do, you know, they had like a nationalist aspect too. They would use terms like like nation and we should create a republic of, uh, of indigenous nations and things like that. Whereas uh, knowledge speakers nowadays, uh, you know, don't use the word nation anymore. They, they see it as a, a Western understanding and they, they, they'll prefer using people, you know, uh, uh -huh. that conveys more their, their understanding of, uh, 
um, yeah, because there's no borders to, to a people. It's really uh, groups of families. So there's this constant refinement also of how to find adequate translations for these uh, for very old words. Uh, uh, that's an ongoing effort, really, to, 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 to look into mm -hmm. this immemorial past and, and convey its instructions properly. So you do make an attempt to partager, like share some of the history and context in this book around the terminology and the language. Um, so beyond sort of looking at the warrior society and sort of a uh, romantic setting, you're trying to get into some of the mechanics of how that group existed um, and how it continues to resonate. Um, can you talk about why that was important for you as like I know you as an activist for a long time like why why was this project I mean obviously it's interesting obviously it's exciting but it was also a strategic choice on your part uh, in some in some ways why was it important for you to work on this mm, yeah well on the mechanics or relating to your your last question as well on the historical importance of these uh, worldviews for the how the modern world and the Western modern world was shaped. You know, we know that uh, Benjamin Franklin was very fascinated by uh, the Iroquois Confederacy, how it worked, how it had this decentralized functioning that, you know, everyone seemed to be free. And there's this old term in Mohawk, um, 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 which means we're all, we all sustain ourselves or we're all free and sovereign. And it's a word, um, yeah, we break it down in the book uh, that there's like, uh, uh, I think it's tsiniot, uh, like a root that's in there that means the way things are. So what it really says is that uh, nature or creation, the, the world, works in such a way where every being is responsible for itself and free and free also and freely enforces its duties to allow the world to continue. So and in the Thanksgiving words also that are before any meeting, there's these words uh, um, uh, that are pronounced. Well, it, it reviews all the beings of, of nature and uh, and and, uh, and uh, you know thanks them for continuing to uh, to do what they have to do uh, and to assume their responsibilities for allowing the world to continue. Down to you know the smallest insects are are doing their job. You know to ensure that the world continues and so and this term uh, doing some research um, uh, I kind of found out it's an hypothesis still it would be hard to really you know uh, to go to the end of that hypothesis but uh, it, uh, there's an understanding that early uh, um, travelers uh, you know colonial uh, uh, writers who came here and witnessed uh, the indigenous ways uh, would use terms like we are all free. They would refer to uh, Mohawk people saying we're all born free, free men or things like that. And actually, if you reverse translate that to the original language, it's and it means much more. It's an understanding of the way, you know, it's an ontological understanding of how the world works and how we're all responsible for the world to to continue and so there's been you know in our 
and, and well, the, the notion of modern freedom is very much related to that. Those, uh, those uh, travelers' accounts were, uh, you know, were big literature uh, in, the, in the 17th century at the time of the Enlightenment. And all the, the topic of the state of nature really was all, all the information coming from the Americas really formed the, uh, you know, the, the framework we're thinking about natural law and all these modern uh, concepts on which our world is based. So it's really this fascinating endeavor to try to understand how these ways our world, you know, our Western world is based on destroying these ways, but also feeding from them in a way, you know, from a fascination uh, and like reusing what they can. I think in the case of the, the United States, they, you know, they copied like the decentralized way that the Iroquois Confederacy uh, worked, but uh, coupled it with the notion of private property, which doesn't exist at all in the, in the indigenous ways. And it gave, uh, it produced this, uh, this world we're living in now, which is like self-contradictory in, in, in that sense. Um, but um, so you're looking into all these concepts and sort of like going, I mean, as an activist, but also as an anthropologist, um, digging and also relating to how these ideas are discussed in the present, but also looking at it not just from like an intellectual point of view, of course, that's part of it, but also from an activist point of view. So like. I see the project as sort of twofold. I mean, there's many dimensions, but why, as an activist, was this essential to sort of decode? Um, because there's contemporary ramifications. I think, yeah, precisely it would be that this is necessary for us as activists precisely because it goes deeper than activism, than our usual understanding as settlers of activism as some kind of personal choice where you know you choose an ideology you believe in anarchism or communism or or whatnot and you could have taken another choice become a liberal or something but it doesn't necessarily you know come from uh from the inside or uh, you know because the way that when often in conferences uh, my mohawk friends are, are are called activists and they always correct and say no we're we're not activists we're just living human beings and we organize ourselves to survive this you know our ways uh, our whole ways uh, the Gayanare Goa which is the great peace which is all these set of protocols to divide power traditionally within the the confederacy there's 117 uh, recorded in the written versions, but there's also oral sure. history that completes that. But it's all small devices to divide power, make sure that, you know, like a, a, a title will never be inherited by someone's son, but it has to go to another family. So it's always like balancing power, throwing it somewhere else so there there's no accumulation. But all these ways are, are actually ways to survive and yes. ways to strive yes. and to continue in, in within <laughs> the, the natural world, finding that, that, uh, that balance and, and that harmony so that, you know, it's ways that are, it really shows that these people knew uh, what humans can become once they do centralize power and start acting on the world and on people as rulers or something. Because there's always been empires in every yeah. continent, you know, and, there was also 
here actually well some people say that the Iroquois were once part of the uh, the mound builders in the Mississippi Valley that were building those those mounds that were uh, you know like pyramids and everything and in that historical moment there was some kind of centralization of power and around men specifically and like creation of a, a uh, of you know priests all male who like took power and hoarding all these resources and it ended up in a ecological catastrophe and so they would have intentionally left uh, that type of society and it would have been a move from the women uh, you know uh, abandoning that way of life uh, uh, centered around male power and, and dominance to to live within the forest uh, you know in a balanced way um, and so I think as activists this just shows uh, how you know we can also uh, think more deeply of our engagement and involvement uh, as not being just a, a liberal choice but uh, an obligation uh, to the world and to the you know and to the continuation of creation because we also live on this planet and we're dependent on it but yet the, the, uh, the our society is destroying the world as it is you know so we do have that responsibility as human beings and whether we're indigenous or not we still are human beings um, and so I think that's where it leads us and places especially like Ganawage that's why it's really interesting that the Warrior Society uh, um, sprung out of Ganawage because this was precisely um, of all Mohawk communities um, yeah one of the most Christianized they would say you know they call them uh, uh, domiciliated uh, uh, indigenous people and um, because it was you know a, 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 a Jesuit uh, parish and uh, and so they were surrounded by all these Christians and by the French Canadians who were historical enemies of the Mohawk so very isolated you know in Ganawake it's a bit the same in Ganesetage as well but from what I saw in these uh, traditional resisting families and really from generation to generation they have these stories of resisting end of the 19th century always and against the seaway in in the 50s and they they sort of preserve their ways in a more I don't know how to say maybe yeah bare bones uh, <laughs> manner uh, that they were like surrounded they had to go underground actually because they were surrounded by these by by uh, by Christians and and by French Canadians and they had to keep like a, a a version of their tradition of resistance that really resides within the families that doesn't depend on on chiefs and on like a, a political structure because the structure actually resides in the self-governing families and clans that apply those protocols for consensual decision making and at any moment without without the need for for institutions without the need for an official longhouse where to practice it it was just happening in the on the kitchen table within families uh to organize and continue those ways that are uh, inherently in resistance against the colonization the full name of the book project that you worked on with many others um the mohawk warrior society a handbook on sovereignty and survival thanks for your time today thanks stefan Thank thanks you. a lot that was a conversation with one of the co-editors of the Mohawk Warrior Society, a handbook on sovereignty and survival. 
that was Philip Blouin, uh, who helped compile that book. This has been another edition of Free City Radio, a program that broadcasts weekly on CKUT 90.3 FM, 11 a.m. on Wednesdays in Montreal, and CGLO 1690 a.m., also in Giagi, Montreal, on Tuesdays at 1 p.m., on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg at 10.30 a.m. on Tuesdays, on CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at 11.30 a.m. on Wednesdays, and finally on CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria, B.C. on Wednesdays at 9 a.m. and Saturdays at 7 a.m. You can find our archives at soundcloud.com slash freecityradio. We also stream as a podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Look us up. Thank you so much to Philippe Blouin for being on the program today to talk about your book um, that you co-edited, The Mohawk Warrior Society. And I'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. I'm Stefan Christoph in Montreal, Giojiage. Take care.